It's great to be with you all this morning. And just so you don't have any misconceptions, um, I don't have a Scottish accent yet. And people in Scotland uh, aren't this tan. This is from uh, spending like a week on the roof helping my dad, you know, put a new roof on. We went to a water park and got burnt there. So there's no sun in Scotland. So it's been a joy to be here and enjoy the sun uh, in Ohio. So uh, go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis 32. Genesis 32 will be our text this morning. And a lot of you know that my wife and I are in Scotland. And uh, so just to give you like a minute update, uh, we're over there. Um, She's doing her PhD program and we're serving at a church called Harper Memorial Baptist. And the Lord's given us a unique opportunity to... um, to help asylum seekers who are coming from all over the world. Our church has 30 different nations represented. And it's a small church like this. So like everyone, it seems like, is from a different country. Um, But Junha and I, my wife, have the opportunity to uh, work with those asylum seekers. Uh, A lot of them are coming from um, countries that are persecuting them for being Christians. And they might just be baby Christians. They might not know a lot about the Lord, about his word. But they're coming and they're hungry and they want to learn. And so that's what we get to do. And if I talk anymore, I'll probably weep, so I better not. So Genesis 32 is our text this morning, uh, starting in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives and two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. How peculiar, right? What a strange, perplexing text. I mean, let's take a poll. How many of you find that text to be one of the most strange texts of the Bible? Just raise your hand. Don't be shy. Right? A lot of you find that to be a strange text. Like, what is going on here? A man shows up and is wrestling with Jacob, and then all of a sudden he's, he's struck on the hip and it's out of socket. Like, what is God trying to show in this text? What is God revealing about himself and his plan? Well, we'll begin by stating the obvious. You and I have never experienced something like Jacob experienced in this text, have we? You don't have to worry about going home today and experiencing what Jacob experienced here, wrestling with God. You don't have to worry about God wrestling you when you get home. 
This was a one-time event in history, and it has a profound theological significance that shapes how we are to think about God. This event sets the trajectory for Jacob, his sons, and all of Israel in the Old Testament. It has to do with the very core of who they are. It's who they're supposed to be. That's what this text is, is showing us. It's how they are to function. And it carries through the work of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. It affects even us today. It shows us something of who we are and how we are to operate in this world since our God is Yahweh. It gives us an understanding about the future, how we can be confident that God will bring about all his promises in Christ. That's what this text does. It has nothing to do with wrestling with God in prayer. You guys have probably heard that, and, and a lot of people like to derive that from this text. That's kind of a misconceived uh, notion from this text. The text actually has nothing to do about our prayer life. Um, and if you think about it, think about what Jacob says there. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I mean, is that how you guys pray? You go to God and you say, well, I'm going to stay here until you bless me, God. It's, it's not that, and that's not the point of the passage. So maybe you could talk about wrestling with God in prayer, but this isn't the passage for that. And to say that that's the application of the text really robs the text of its power. It distorts the intention of the author and places on the text our own ideas, um, which a lot of Christianity is doing today. A lot of the church, they come to the Bible and place their own ideas on it and think, what does this mean to me? We don't want to know what it means to us. We want to know what God means. We're, concerned about, we're not concerned about what the text could mean or what it means to us or what someone else says it means. We want to know what God means. And in this way, when we truly hear from God through his word, we have a proper understanding of what he says. And we grow in our relationship with God. It causes us to grow in our likeness to Christ and in our obedience to his word. And more and more we see the world as God sees the world. That's the point of coming to a passage on a Sunday and, and your own personal Bible study throughout the week. Every day you're going to see what does God have to say. And when that happens, when that transformation takes place on a daily basis, our joy in Christ is overflowing. Our light for Christ is shining bright. Our love for God and others is deep and strong. And God gets glory from our lives. So let's think together about what is going on in this text and what God is teaching us about himself and his plan. And we might also see a, a, a little bit about our own hearts and learn a little bit about how we could live a bit more for the glory of God than we already are. Now, our study this morning will be heavily background-focused, meaning we're going to talk about the context of the Pentateuch, the context of Genesis. So you're going to be learning a lot about the Old Testament. And the reason for that is this very passage just has so many strands in it that ties backwards all the way to Genesis 1 and following, and it ties forward to what Jacob is going to encounter. And so looking at what's leading up to this passage, we'll just the text will fall right open before your eyes when we get there. And you'll say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. What God's doing what this event is all about, why God chose to wrestle with God and what he is showing about himself. So, our passage is about, or is found in the book of Genesis, which is part of the Pentateuch. You might not be familiar with that word. It means the first five books of the Bible. Um, it's also referred to as the Torah. 
And Moses, God through Moses, wrote that in about 1400 BC after God delivered them out of Egypt. He saved them, brought his people out of Egypt to make them his own possession, to live for his glory. And this people is a nation of farmers. They're on the brink of entering into the land of Canaan, which God has promised to give them all the way back to Abraham. That's where the promise originates. He promises this people that they will have the land of Canaan as a possession forever. And at this point in history, when the Pentateuch is written, God says, now go in and conquer the land. Go in and engage in warfare. Go in and go to battle. Have you ever thought about how do you get people to do that? You've got a nation of farmers, people not trained in war, go in, engage in war, and conquer this land. Go against these other nations that are trained in war, go battle against them, and you're going to win. What? What are, you, what are you talking about? How can that be? Well, the way you get people to go in is by writing the Pentateuch. Here's what the Pentateuch does. The Pentateuch shows Israel, this is who your God is. This is God's plan. This is your role in that plan. And you, Israel, have to make it happen in this moment. Genesis through Deuteronomy is one of the greatest motivational speeches ever written. It is one book composed of five volumes, but it's the greatest motivational speech ever written to show this is the God you serve, Israel. You have nothing to fear. This God has begun a great plan, and the plan involves the whole world. A plan of redemption, a plan of hope. And you, Israel, God has chosen to be the nation that launches that plan. And here's what God has done to get you to this moment. He's moved heaven and earth to get you to this moment, Israel. Remember all the plagues in Egypt? Remember how God brought them out? He's done marvelous deeds in their sight to get them to this moment, to be ready to enter the land, to fulfill his promise, to give them the land. Now it's time to go in. The Pentateuch shows them God's greatness, God's program, and therefore how they are to live, to make a maximum impact for his glory. And that's even true for us here today, right? That's what the Pentateuch does for us. That's what the whole rest of the Bible does for us. It shows us God's greatness. It shows us God's program. It shows us how we fit into that and how we are to live to make a maximum impact for the glory of God. So we should feel right at home when we read through the Pentateuch, when we read through Genesis. It should be encouraging. It should be building us up. Yes, we, this is our God, and here's how we are to function. And, of course, we have to read the rest of the Bible to figure out what exactly that looks like for the church because it's not going in and conquering nations, right? But here's where it begins. This is the foundation. This is where God sets up this theology of who he is and who his people are to be. Now, when we open up to the book of Genesis, we find that God has established a thesis, He sets out in the creation of the world this thesis that God is God and there is no other. God is God and he deserves all the glory because he created everything and he owns everything. As creator and owner of the world, he is categorically different. And this great God has codified the world to bring him glory. That's why everything exists. Everything that exists is to bring glory to God and to demonstrate the glory of God. And we discover in Genesis in the beginning that God's agenda is to be glorified in every single possible way. 
Yet in Genesis 3, we see that there's a challenge to this. Satan, through the serpent, deceives the woman and the man to eat of the tree that God commanded them not to eat. And through this, he is, he is seeking to overthrow God from the throne. He thinks, if I can make man, who is God's vice-regent, who is God's king reigning on the earth, stumble and fall, if I can subvert the authority of creation that God has set up, then I can overthrow God, and I can now reign as king. Fortunately, that is not the way it's going to be, but the, it did result in the fall, it did result in sin, it did result in death, and it resulted in us living in a cursed world. The image of God and man is now tarnished. There is separation between God and men. But then we see in Genesis 3.15, directly after the fall, what does God do? He promises a seed. He promises an offspring of the woman. He promises you, Adam and Eve, are going to have a son who is going to come and be a champion. He's promising the Messiah. He's promising Jesus in Genesis 3.15. He says he's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, meaning he's going to crush the head of Satan. He's going to have the victory. He's going to bring about redemption. He's going to reverse the curse and make everything new. He will accomplish this plan. And then, as I know a lot of you have been involved in Sunday school and going through the book of Genesis, you'll know that the rest of Genesis is showing where's the Messiah going to come from. It's this narrowing down. You see all those genealogies, which a lot of people find boring, but really they're so necessary because what the writer, Moses, is doing is showing where's this seed, where's this champion going to come from? And he starts in Genesis 5 and says, look, here's the line. And it's going from there. And then he continues with Noah's um, offspring and continues with their descendants and then continues with Abraham. And you just keep seeing it narrowing down. You'll see some descendants of Ishmael in there. Oh, that's not the line. He doesn't spend very much time on that. You'll see some descendants of Esau in there. That's not the line. That's not where he's coming from. Until you get to Genesis 49 where you see the Messiah, the seed, will come from what tribe? Judah. And so all throughout Genesis, you see this tracing. Where is the seed? Where is this champion? Where is the Messiah, the conqueror, going to come from? And that's what Moses is, by and large, showing by those genealogies and um, all the stories that are, that are being told. Now, when we get to Genesis 12 and following, it focuses on the life of Abraham for several chapters, till chapter 24. God shows that the Messiah will come from the descendants of one particular man, and that's Abraham. And what we see is that God gives Abraham a bundle of promises, which we call the Abrahamic covenant. And you can remember those three promises in three simple words, land, seed, and blessing, right? You're probably familiar with that, land, seed, and blessing. He tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, the land of Canaan, as a possession forever. And I'm going to give that land to your descendants. You're going to be a great nation. You're going to have a lot of descendants. And the descendants, the ultimate descendant, will be the seed in whom all the nations will be blessed. Talking about the Messiah. Talking about Christ. So it's going to facilitate blessing for the nations. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand about the Old Testament. God wasn't just about one nation in the Old Testament. He's always been about the nations. Even with the promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 to Abraham, in you all the nations will be blessed. 
He chooses one man. He chooses one nation from which to bring the Messiah. Also, everyone, us here in America, people in Scotland, can be saved. He's always had a national agenda. But he chooses one nation to function in a very particular way in the Old Testament. They had a purpose. God was going to raise up this nation from Abraham to make an international impact. That was to be their role. And the Abrahamic covenant is the conduit for the restoration of the world. That's how restoration and redemption would come through the Abrahamic covenant. And that's how Israel needed to understand themselves. That's what Moses is showing as he's writing Genesis to these people who are on the brink of going into the land. This is who you are. You're to have an international impact. So God's raising them up. He continues to raise them up. And what you see in the book of Genesis is that God starts to show some foundational principles. He shows this is your foundation you are to build upon. Israel is shown in the stories of Abraham that they are there to be a nation of faith. God, all throughout the stories of Abraham, is building his faith. He starts out as an unbeliever, coming from the land of Ur. And throughout all the stories that are given, you see God is building his faith until the final test of giving up his son, Isaac. God has made him a man of faith. And that's who Israel needs to be in this world, as a people of faith. Because faith fundamentally points to God. Faith magnifies God in what he is doing. Faith says, I can't, but he does. And through him, I can. Faith shows that God accomplishes his plan on his own. He doesn't need our help. He can bring his plan to full fulfillment even when humans are sinful and stupid. Well, after Abraham, those bundle of promises, that's how I like to describe it to people just to keep it simple, those bundle of promises, land, seed, and blessing, were passed on to Isaac. And then after Isaac, they were passed on to Jacob, who is one of the main characters of our text this morning. They received those promises that those, that Abrahamic covenant will be carried out through Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob, then Jacob's 12 sons, and then onward and onward, all the way to the Messiah. And in him, that's where they find their fulfillment, in Jesus. During the life of Isaac, particularly his son, Jacob, God begins to show the nation of Israel a couple more fundamental elements about who they are to be. The first one is God is present. God is with you. That's the first one. The second one is God fights for Israel. Those are the two main principles. When you read Genesis 25 through 35, those are the two main principles you should be looking for. Because over and over again, it talks about God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. He's telling Jacob that. He's telling Israel that. God is with you. And what you will see is that God fights for you, Israel. God is the one fighting for you. That's what God is primarily teaching his people through the stories given about, the ja- given about Jacob's life. They're not just random stories like, oh, Moses found some stories about Jacob. They're all co- cohesively put together to show those two points. God is with you. God fights for Israel. Therefore, trust him and move on in his plan. Now, the main thing to know about Jacob, talking about Jacob now, is that he is a schemer. 
He's a schemer. From the time Jacob was in the womb, Jacob is always a schemer, always a wrestler, always a supplanter. His name means conniving one, a tricky one, a struggler. Now, this is going to be important for understanding the event that we're going to talk about in Genesis 32. And Jacob had a twin, Esau, and when they were in the womb, God told Rebekah, their mom, the older will serve the younger, meaning Esau, who came out of the womb first, he will, even though he should not, even though the younger should serve the older, it's going to be reversed. And that shows us that everything that takes place from then on is all because God chose that to be. God, that was God's intention. And he can do that because he's in control. I mean, it doesn't have to go in the order that you might expect it to. So he says, Esau, the older one, will serve Jacob, the younger, which doesn't take place in ancient Near Eastern culture, by the way. So this is something way different, way out of line it would be viewed as in their culture. And Jacob, as he's growing up, he wants the birthright. Esau doesn't care. And that's sin on Esau's part for not caring about the birthright. Because in that birthright, remember those bundle of promises that God gave to Abraham? That birthright encompasses those promises, land, seed, and blessing. From you, the Messiah would come. But Esau didn't care. But Jacob did. He wants the birthright, and that's exactly what he gets. And it's through a very bizarre scenario, right? Esau comes in. Give me some of that stew. Not unless you sell me your birthright. Like, like I said, Esau doesn't care. And it's bizarre, but God works through that event to say, yeah, the birthright does belong to Jacob. It is his. He gets to carry on the Abrahamic covenant. He is the one who gets the bundle of promises. Now, when they grow up, and it's basically time for Isaac to die, even though he has like 20 more years because he's still living after Jacob comes back from Haran, which we're going to see. But he thinks he's going to die. So he's like, okay, time to, to bless Esau. This is an act of Isaac's unbelief. It, it's, a, it's a way for Isaac to scheme and try to get his way because he preferred Esau over Jacob. And so he wants Esau to get the blessing. The blessing is a very important part. Like with those bundle of promises and the birthright, the blessing was also to be given to the firstborn. So Isaac is trying to keep in line with that. And so he calls for Esau. Come on, Esau, make me a meal and I'm going to bless you. But Rebecca hears about it and she's a schemer too. That's where Jacob learns his scheming from probably. She devises this plan. Let's dress you up in your brother's clothes and put hair on your, on your arms because Esau was hairy. And you go out and you know, cook this, this lamb and prepare him some, some food and, and then steal the blessing from Abraham. And that's exactly what they do. And you think it's going to work. And then all of a sudden you think the plan is not going to work because what does Jacob do? He speaks. Uh-oh. Isaac said, oh, you, you smell like my son, the garments of the field, and you, uh, you feel like my son, he felt his arms, but now that you just said something, mm, I'm not too sure, you sound like Jacob, not Esau, and in that moment you say, this plan is going to fail, but guess what, 
It doesn't fail. Why doesn't it fail? Because God is causing it. He's bringing it to his plan, what he wants. God is behind the scenes making it work. God said the older will serve the younger, and he's going to accomplish that plan no matter what people try to do. So in the end, Jacob gets the birthright and the blessing. Esau wants to kill Isaac. That's bad. The plan... um, that plan fails, though, because Jacob is sent away and he's moving to Haran. Now, this is a dangerous thing because Abraham told his descendants, don't go out of the land of Canaan. And yet here you see Jacob going out of the land of Canaan. So he knows that it's not going to be by his own effort that he makes it back to the land of Canaan. It's going to have to be by God working. And on his way to Haran, Jacob stopped in Bethel to rest for the night And you remember his dream, Jacob's dream? He dreamt of something going into heaven, a ladder that reached into heaven. And there were angels ascending and descending on it. And a lot of people, um, when you first see that, you don't understand that either. Like, what what is this dream symbolizing? And what we come to find out through through studying it is that that dream is, is showing us that God is present. It's like we talked about before we started this narrative. The, the point of Jacob's narratives is to show God is present. God is with you. You have this ladder that's touching the earth. You have it reaching to the heavens. You have angels ascending and descending on it, showing God is not far off like you may think. He is here. He is here with you. And that's what Jacob needed to know as he was going off to the land of Haran, that God was with him to bless him, not for his own sake, but because of his promises to Abraham. God would be with him as he goes. And that was in Bethel, and it's important to know when you get to Genesis 20, or 35, at the end of these narratives, he's also in Bethel. Now the first time he, he dreamed of that ladder, and he also, um, God brought up those promises again to Jacob. God brought up the land and the seed and the blessing. These are, these are going to be yours. And so he's promising that to them, to him. This was to be part of Israel's theology, to know God is present with us. He is here. He's not abandoned us. Now, even though God is doing this and working, and and Jacob sees him working and understands God is with him, in Genesis 28, 20 through 22, we see Jacob still a schemer. Jacob is trying to leverage God. He says, if you take care of me and give me food, then I will let you be my God. That's a stupid thing to say because God is his God no matter what. doesn't matter, oh, if you give me what I want, then you can be my God. No, it's Jacob again trying to scheme and use God for his own purposes. But it's no way to negotiate with God because he's already your God, Jacob. And the only reason that Jacob succeeds is because God allows him to succeed. Now, Jacob finally arrives at his relative's house in Haran and meets his uncle Laban. And initially, he receives a warm welcome, right? They make an agreement that if Jacob works for Laban seven years, he can marry his youngest daughter, Rachel. What we come to find out is that Laban is also a schemer, except he's a real schemer. He's not a dumb schemer like Jacob. Laban has plans that actually work. He's a true schemer, and Jacob's going to feel 
the pain of that throughout his life because, yeah, he works seven years, but then what happens? Laban sneakily gives him his oldest daughter, Leah, so that he didn't even know that he was marrying the wrong girl. And so then he schemes again and says, well, work for me another seven years, then I, you know, I'll also give you Rachel, or Rebecca. Rachel. Um, and so he does that, and what you see is that there's this scheming going on. Laban is going against Jacob, getting out of Jacob what he wants. Yet God has a plan for Jacob. God is there with him, and he ends up turning things for good for Jacob. Remember the whole thing with the sheep? And again, Jacob does a dumb thing with bark and, and tries to make them spotted and these other ones not spotted. Like, that's not going to... Even the Bible it presents it. Like in the Hebrew, you can see, this is a dumb plan, Jacob. This is not going to work. The only reason that that worked and that Jacob's sheep's, uh, sheepfold multiplied was because God was behind it, making it work. It wasn't like he had a magical spell or something that he cast on the, the sheep. It was because God was was behind it all. Now, Laban expected that if he went forward with that plan, well, yeah, marry both my daughters, that the family was just going to implode. Like, that's it. I don't have to worry about any of them. But instead, they start having a child contest, right? They start saying, oh... Leah bears four children, Rachel has none, and then there's servants given so that they have children, and they end up having 11 children, 12 eventually, but at this point, 11 children. So they start having this child contest, and God is there with them, making Jacob into a great nation, not only in his family, but also in his possessions. The only reason that anything is working for Jacob is that God is with him. God is present and providentially at work. And here's something to remember. God redeems in spite of the fact that Jacob schemes. You can remember this section that way. God redeems, but Jacob schemes. Jacob schemes, but God redeems. And when we come to Genesis 32 then, Laban has become weak and Jacob has become strong. And God says it's time for Jacob to go back home. Notice Genesis 32 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now this runs into a complication because, again, Jacob schemes. He's a tricky guy. And so he decides to run away from Laban. He doesn't wait on God to show him how he should go about leaving and do it the proper way. And in the ancient Near East, that's considering kidnapping. Laban thinks, Jacob's kidnapped my family. And in the ancient Near Eastern laws... That is a penalty worthy of death. Laban shows up and says, it is within my power to do you harm. Basically, that's a nice way of saying, I could kill you based on the law right now. But God showed up, talked to Laban the night before, said, this is in my plan that Jacob would be leaving you, so don't lay a hand on him. Again, God is at work behind it all, even though Jacob is doing not so smart things at all. God is bringing his plan to fruition. In Genesis 31:42, Jacob realizes the only reason he has everything he has in spite of Laban's schemes against him is because of God. Look at 31:42. <clears throat> 
If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So he realizes, this is God who's done this for me. And Jacob's returning home. He's now entering into the land but he has an even bigger obstacle to face. Remember that guy Esau, his brother who wanted to kill him? Well, he still wants to kill him. Esau wants to kill Jacob for what he did to him, stealing his birthright and his blessing because he did start to care about it, by the way. Jacob knows this and is nervous. And for this reason, in Genesis 32, God sends angels to Jacob as an encouragement to him to remind him remember the angels ascending and descending on the ladder shows God is with us Genesis 32 1 he sends him angels it reminds him God is here God is with me look what he says in verse 2 of 32 and when Jacob saw them he said this is God's camp he's acknowledging God is here with me I know it but Jacob always schemes comes up with three plots even after god gave, gave him that he comes up with three plots plot one he divides the camp into two sections and then he thinks it would be a good idea to pray let me divide the camp in two sections and send them in their separate ways so maybe esau will only destroy one of the camps he's scheming he's not trusting in the lord that he will make a way for him and you think he's doing the right thing by praying He's doing what he should do, trusting God. He's getting closer, but he's not quite there yet because he develops plot number two. He sends a bribe to Esau. He puts together all these camels and donkeys and things and sends them to Esau. Maybe he'll not want to kill me anymore because I send him this bribe. And then there's plot number three, which we find in Genesis 32, 22 through 32, our text. He thinks they're all going to die, and so he just takes his close, immediate family, right? He takes his 11 kids and the four moms, two of his wives and their two servants who bore the other sons. He takes his immediate family and he runs. So that brings us to the passage we read earlier. Genesis 32, the same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. Now, the same night refers to the same night that Jacob prayed. Jacob prayed to the Lord in chapter 32, verses 9 through 12, and that's plot number one. So the same night is that. It's also the same night where he devised plot number two to send the bribe to Esau. That same night, he arose and took his two wives, Rachel and Leah, his two female servants, Bilna and Zilpah, and then the other, he took the, uh, his 11 children, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, and Joseph. And now they're, they're coming from the north and getting ready to enter the land of Canaan, the, the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants, and they are on the far western side. They are, if you know any geography of Israel, they're on the west side of the Jordan River, about halfway in between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. That's where the Jabbok River is. The Jabbok is a stream that's about 60 to 65 miles long and runs from east to west and actually feeds right into the Jordan. And there's six cities built along that river that are very important in Israel's history. 
but we don't have time to talk about that. So we will move on and say that it is um, in this setting that Genesis, the event of Genesis 32, 22 through 32 takes place. It happens along the river that Jacob and his family are crossing, which is part of his scheming because he's scared of what Esau will do to him. And that's when a man shows up during the night and starts wrestling with Jacob until dawn. Now, in regards to helping you understand the meaning of this text, I want to frame our discussion around three main questions. The first one is, who is the man who Jacob wrestles with? The second one is, why did the man come to wrestle with Jacob? And the third is, what is the significance of God changing Jacob's name to Israel? And in answering those three questions, you have a better understanding what God is teaching through this event. So the first question, who is the man who wrestles with Jacob? Notice verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So from this verse we understand that Jacob's assailant was a man, or at least he was appearing like a man. But why, why do we say that this is the story of Jacob wrestling God? Where does that come from? Well, if you look at verse 28 in Genesis 32, the man tells Jacob, then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So the idea is he's speaking of himself there. You've striven with God and with men. Like in this event of wrestling with me, I'm showing you you've striven with God. But even further, in verse 30, look at what Jacob calls the name of the city then. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So Jacob understands this wasn't an ordinary man. This was God, and my life has been spared even though I've seen God face to face. And further, you don't have to turn there, but Hosea 12, 3 3 and 4 describes this event. And listen to what Hosea the prophet says. In the womb... He took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Now when you put those together and where God and the angel, you probably know that there's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And if you remember back in Genesis uh, 18, you have three men show up to Abraham, right? before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. You have three men. Two of them we find out are angels. The other one we find out is Yahweh. We find out is God. And so here it seems in Genesis 32 that we have an appearance again of the angel of Yahweh, God himself, which we can also say is a pre-incarnate version of Christ, meaning God the Son shows up before he comes in the flesh, but this would be God the Son showing up in an appearance of a man to wrestle in a, uh, so that there can be a physical substance. Like, you can't wrestle a spirit, so he shows up as a man. So the man who wrestles with Jacob is God. That's key to understanding this text and, and what's going on. Second question, why did God come to wrestle with Jacob? And that's probably what you're all wondering, and when you read this passage, you're wondering, why? Why does he come to wrestle? Now, the really neat thing is the 
answer to that is not immediately apparent in the text. It actually comes in the, the word choice that Moses uses here to describe the event. There's two Hebrew words here you need to know. One's for Jacob and one's for wrestled. There's a word play going on here in verse 24. Jacob is the word Yaakov. Wrestled is the word Yaavak. You hear the similarity there? Yaakov, Yaavak. And this word wrestled, you know that's what Moses is doing. This is the only time it's used in the Bible. It's used two times and it's right here in this text. He chooses the word to, sh- to show us what is God doing behind this. God chooses an activity to do with Jacob that shows something about what Jacob is like. That sounds like his name, yes, one, but also it shows something that Jacob is like. God, in wrestling with Jacob, is showing Jacob who he is. He is a wrestler. That's what Jacob has been doing all along. He's been wrestling. Wrestling, think about it. Have any of you ever been wrestlers? Raise your hand if you were a wrestler in school. Anyone? Okay, no one. Oh, one. Good. All right. You know that it, is a, it involves strategy, right? Trick- you're not going to tell your opponent which way you're going to move. It involves strategy. It involves trickery. And that's exactly what God is showing through this. It's an object lesson for Jacob to learn who he has been all his life. Jacob is the one who manipulates situations for his own advantage. Really, he tries to manipulate God. Jacob is a schemer, as we've seen throughout those stories. And God wrestles with Jacob as this object listen to reveal who Jacob is. He's saying, Jacob, this is you. You've always been a wrestler. The reason God is wrestling and struggling with Jacob here at the Jabbok is that they're reenacting Jacob's whole life. This is who you've been your whole life, Jacob. Just a wrestler. You've been trying to manipulate situations. You've been trying to manipulate me, God says into doing what's right for you. You're a schemer. And just as throughout Jacob's whole life, it has always seemed to him that he's winning in his scheming, right? It just keeps working out in his favor. Seems like he's winning. During this wrestling match, it kind of seems like Jacob's winning at one point, right? In verse 25, verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, So it seems like, oh, Jacob's stronger than this man. Like, maybe it's not really God because God is letting him win and it's for a purpose. It's part of this object lesson. So you may have think, you may think that your victory in life, your success has been because of your scheming. It may look like that you're bringing about your victory, but no, it is me who's been doing that. Because look in verse 25, what happens? It ends in an instant when the man, God, touched Jacob's hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So all along, you know, the man, God, has the power to just end it right then and there. He just touch. The word can also mean strike. But even if you strike someone as hard as you can, you're not going to knock someone's hip out of its joint. There is a a supernatural power here that's taking place to, to cause that to happen. And it's permanent damage as we find out at the end of the text. And so all of a sudden we see who is really in control. Jacob sees who's really in control. God is in control. Just like God has been the one who's been in control during Jacob's whole life to give him success. The wrestling match here is actually helping us to interpret what's been going on so far in the life of Jacob. 
Jacob schemes, but God redeems. God's saying through this event, Jacob, you thought this whole time you could fight. You fight and you fight and you fight, but you really are not fighting. God is fighting for you. God is fighting for you. And that leads us to the final question as we consider this text is, what is the significance of God changing Jacob's name to Israel? What's that about? Why change Jacob's name here and why change it to Israel? Verse 26. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So when God says, okay, it's time for you to let me go now. I just damaged your hip severely. How about you, how about you let me go? Jacob has come to the realization that he's wrestling with someone who's more than just a man. He's wrestling with someone who's greater than himself, and that's why he asked for a blessing. In the Old Testament, you always ask for a blessing if you're the lesser. The greater blesses the lesser individual. So he says, bless me. Verse 27, And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, it's important to remember here, a name is not just a title for someone. A name is actually someone's essence. And what you have going on in the text here is God is asking, who are you? What is your essence? And Jacob finally realizes who he is. Jacob. I try to scheme all the time. That's who I am. And this is when God gives Jacob his new name. He says, you... You acknowledge you are who you are, but that's not who you're going to be anymore. Look at verse 28. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This is the first time the word Israel is used in the Bible. This is the event in which God not only gives Jacob a new name, but he sets forth what his people are to be called Israel. What does Israel mean? It's very important for, un- for understanding what God's trying to show here. One, there's two words that make up Israel. Yisra and El. El is God and is the subject of the word. Yisra means to struggle, means to fight, means to overcome. You put it together, God fights for you. That's what Israel means. You've been called Jacob, a schemer, one who fights for his own, but really, you are Israel. God fights for you. You are that one. You are the one that God fights for. Notice verse 28 again. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. In other words, all this time you've been striving with God and man, and yet you have endured, you have overcome, you have had success. How? Because it is God who fights for you, and that is your new name. The meaning of this name, Israel, God fights for you, becomes then a key value for, and mentality for the nation of Israel. This event and the changing of Jacob's name to Israel shows that God isn't just present in this world, kind of like a bystander. He is active. He is working. He is present and he is fighting. He is fighting to make a change. He is fighting 
for the redemption that he promised in Genesis 3.15, that a Messiah would come. Think about all that could go wrong. You have all those genealogies, and God knows exactly where the Messiah is going to come from, where Jesus is going to come from, and he controls it all. He's not far away and distant. He's here, present with us, fighting to bring about the accomplishment of his plan and the glory of his name. And this is how the nation of Israel, the people that Moses is writing the Pentateuch to originally, this is how they are to think of themselves. This is how they will succeed in conquering the land. Remember we asked the question, how's a nation of farmers going and conquer the land? It's not on their own ability. It's not in their own effort. It's because God is with them to fight for them. And this is a fact that Moses brings up several times throughout the Pentateuch that it is God who fights for them. Listen to Exodus 14, 13 through 14, right after they come out of the nation of Egypt. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, for he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Isn't that amazing? You have only to be silent. The Lord is the one who's going to fight for you, just like he did down in Egypt. Deuteronomy 1, 29 through 31. Moses says, Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them, the enemies. The Lord your God goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord has carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Another one in Deuteronomy 3, 21 through 22. Moses says, And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord, has, Lord God has done to these two kings, who they just defeated, so would the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And one more, Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through 4. When you go out to war against your enemies, you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own. You shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Whenever you see Israel having victory in the Old Testament, it's never because of them you know it's only because God is with them and fighting for them. And that's what this wrestling event is showing. Now, how huge was this in setting the foundation for Israel, for the nation of Israel? Look at verses 31 and 32. The sun rose up on him, Jacob, as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. This was such a significant event in the nation of Israel that it changed their diet. When diets change in the Bible, heads up, you better be looking for some big transformation taking place. It's like when Jesus told Peter, Rise up, 
kill that pig and make some bacon. That might be in my translation. But he tells him to eat meat, this pig meat, right? That's because a major transformation was occurring. A major transition in redemptive history was happening. The old covenant passed away. The new covenant coming in. And here's a similar thing. This is big time for Israel. And they are to know it's big time. So much so that every time they sit down to eat meat, they're reminded God is with us and he is fighting for us. Just think about a little boy or girl asking their dad, Daddy, why don't we eat this part of the meat again? Well, son, because it's because God wrestled with our father Jacob and when he did, he t- touched Jacob's hip socket and uh, his hip was put out of joint. And then when they were done wrestling, he went away limping because of his hip. So they tell that story. And then the child asks, why did God wrestle with Jacob? And then he provides an answer like we found here today. Well, he did it to show that God is fighting for us. And they would know that theology from this event. It would stick out in their mind. God is with you and he is fighting for you. This would remind the people of their purpose and function. God fights for you. Now, it's appropriate to ask that we've seen the intention of the word. Now, how, what about me? Well, how does that apply to me? Is, is, does God fight for me? Does God fight for his church? Does God fight for individual believers here today? And you better believe he does. God is the God who fights for us, and he does so in so many ways. Just think about it. He has fought to achieve our salvation on the cross and to overcome our perverse and sinful hearts so that we actually love him and believe in him. He fought to achieve that. It was his promise back in Genesis 3.15 that the one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And then we see that plan unfolded throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, that it involves Jesus dying on a cross, raising from the dead, ascending to the right hand of the Father. He accomplished everything that needed to take place for us to be saved. He fights for us. That's the only reason that any of us in here are saved today. It is not based on our effort. It is only based on what He accomplished on the cross. It is only by faith and trusting that. And faith is just, a, is just receiving what He accomplished. We do nothing. Beyond that, Secondly, he fights to put our sin to death and conform us to the image of Christ. Sure, we have a big part to play in our sanctification, don't we? You're very familiar with Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The only way we can become more like Christ, the only way we can defeat our sin and put off the flesh, put off the old, put on the new, is because God is dwelling in us. We are his temple, 1 Corinthians 6 says. He's in us, putting to death that sin that old man. He is the one fighting. In Romans chapter 8, we see we are to be killing our sin that dwells within us by the Holy Spirit. You can't put sin to death on your own. It must be 
because he's doing it. Any victory that you have over sin in your life is all because of what he has done. And that can be your encouragement throughout every single day. Why did I say no to sin and yes to Christ today? Because God is with me and he is fighting for me. The spirit is at war against the flesh, Paul talks about in Galatians 5. We owe our sanctification to him. We owe our salvation to him. Third, he fights to save sinners when we tell them the gospel. Remember that the next time you're sharing the gospel with someone. It's your role to tell them the true gospel. But you can't save them. But you know that God is there with you and he will fight to save that person if that is his will. He will fight to save them just like he saved you. And fourth, he will fight until Jesus returns to set up his kingdom and fulfill all his promises. God's not going to leave us to our own devices. He is with us. Our God is present with us. He is fighting for us to accomplish his plan for his own glory. This is the God you serve by faith. The God who fights for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And though many things can often be confusing and we don't understand even after the hundredth time we've read we thank you that we have teachers that we have you have through the ages from the apostles granted many believers who are faithful to study your word and to shed some light on difficult passages such as this and to really observe the text to ask key questions and to provide answers for us and we just long to eat the crumbs off that table, to have our faith strengthened a little bit more. Thank you for showing us through this event, Lord, that you are here with us and you fight for your people. May our time in your word this morning help us to understand your word a bit more deeply and may it cause us to rely on you in every aspect of our life thank you for accomplishing salvation on the cross for us thank you for working in us sanctification and making us more like Jesus oh help us when we fail and let us remember it is not our own effort but we trust in you that you are fighting to bring about your will in us Oh God, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.